in two days, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming March 14th, only on Disney+. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give a special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to PerpetualChessPod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined today by someone I am really excited to talk to because he has a wide range of experience in the chess world as a trainer, author, and, of course, player. He is the three-time Romanian national chess champion, 10-time chess Olympian. He's prolific and award-winning author, probably best of all known for Learn from the Legends, a book which won the 2005 Chess Cafe Book of the Year. It's been recommended on this very podcast by people such as Grandmaster Daniel Naroditsky, Grandmaster Noel Studer, among others. Rumor has it that the book was also recommended by legendary Grandmaster Bent Larson, who is the subject of our guest's, one of his latest books. Um, and which is called Learn from Bent Larsen from Quality Chess. It deconstructs lessons from the legendary Danish player. He's also a longtime trainer, including working as the second of none other than Grandmaster Judith Polgar. So I can't wait to hear about his stories and chess wisdom. Let's welcome Grandmaster Mihail Marin to the show. Welcome, Mihail. Hello, Ben. Hello, everybody. Thank you for inviting me. Just to correct one issue, uh, I have played in 12 Olympiads. I knew I would get it wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, no, I, I, I think that. The information on Wikipedia is not updated. Ah, okay. Yeah, I should have known better. Um, and they even stopped updating Olympase, which, of course, is an amazing site, but it's uh, hard to track this information down sometime. Yes. Actually, in Romania, uh, my former trainer, okay, uh, he is not uh, with us anymore, uh, Teodor Gitescu, uh, also Grandmaster, he also played in 12 Olympiads. But uh, there is uh, one player who played in more, 14, and that's Florin Gheorghiu probably the supreme legend, chess legend in Romania. And are you hoping to eclipse his record, Mihail? 
Oh, well, I uh, uh, I never gave up uh, hope. Actually, I should have uh, equaled his record, but uh, for some reasons, uh, on two occasions, uh, when I had the second rating in, in my country, they wouldn't take me into the team. That's okay, politics and things like that. But uh, even now, um, uh, uh, let's say now my rating is, has dropped a lot. But uh, it doesn't mean a thing. I mean, I'm I'm always ready to. to I, I I believe there could be such good um, good periods in your life uh, in your career when uh, when you can uh, do your best. And uh, I find it yet so maybe fifty fifty. Uh, okay. But I I will never give up the, the the thought that I I should try to get one more Olympiad. And if I get one more, then. <laughs> I'm just one step away from uh, 14. Yeah, and I did enjoy, you did an interview uh, on Chessbase a couple years back where uh, you talked about how you met your wife, which I, I hope to eventually discuss. But I, one quote that, rung, that resonated with me was you said, you're foremost, you're always a chess player at heart. You write books, you're a trainer, but first and foremost, you consider yourself a chess player. Yes, I mean okay. Uh, writing books and articles. Actually, I have been written. Uh, I have been writing. I have written roughly twenty books as author, author or co-author. For instance, I include the books, um, the three books by Judith Polgar, uh, which Fantastic were actually books. working. It's not. It's not a ghost uh, written book. It's we both work together on uh, on it. Uh, only that I'm not on the cover. I'm on the first page. As um, yes. Uh, <laughs> So, including this, it's uh, roughly 20 books. Uh, the Larson book was is the last uh, so far, but there is one more in the pipeline, uh, Legends 2. Yes. And uh, the books have been published in uh, eight languages, uh, including Romanian, which is a bit surprising because there is not such a good market here. Uh, Russian, okay, and, uh, and even Mongolian. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Yes, you know, Mongolian is some, somehow special. I mean, uh, a rare language. I mean, nobody speaks Mongolian except for, for Mongolians, but they translated it. They translated Learn from the Legends or a different book? Yes, 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 yes. Learn from the Legends, yes. Okay. And what languages do you speak, Mihal? Well, um, my best language is uh, probably Spanish and uh, Italian. But uh, my main language uh, now is Russian because uh, I speak Russian with my wife all the time. But, you know, Russian is such a complex language uh, that, uh, well, you, even for a Russian, it's not easy to say that uh, uh, he or she speaks uh, it perfectly. Uh, but, okay, we, we speak Russian all the, all the, all the day. Um, then German was actually my first foreign language. Uh, I had some et ethnical Germans, uh, uh, German friends in uh, in Brasov, in Romania, and I used to spend uh, one month every vacation with them. So that was very good practice. Over the years, I, I lost uh, a bit of it uh, because um, I rarely rarely played in Germany. Uh, but then, um, when Chessbase invited me to uh, make recordings in uh, two languages, English and German, uh, I. Uh, uh, recovered it partly by uh, I always go like this. I mean, I start to read something really difficult, really heavy, and that was the uh, the Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. Okay, nine hundred fifty. It's a very difficult lecture. Actually, most of the Germans could not uh, read more than uh, ten uh, than hundred pages or two hundred. But I have read that for more than one year. You know, with the dictionary, it's nine hundred fifty pages. 
and with the exception of uh, a kiss somewhere in the middle and a few deaths, nothing really happens. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, nothing happens. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's really hard lecture, but he's so, his sentences are so long, uh, typical for, for German somehow, but they are so long, so uh, well uh, built uh, somehow, shaped, uh, that this is a good training for the language. That's amazing. So, <laughs> I mean, that's a funny story. And I, I want um, to speak some French, but my French, I mean, I'm not so proud about my French, but uh, if I'm in France, I can, uh, okay, I can speak French. I mean, I've traveled enough that when someone like you tells me that they don't speak much French, it basically means that they're fluent because you um, speak. Yeah, but it's nothing compared with all the other languages. Okay. Uh, so we've got Ger German, um, Spanish, Italian, Romanian. Russian, huh? English, yes, and a little bit of French. Am I missing any? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I can survive that. I can, uh, but I need a few days to to get into shape. Okay, uh, that makes sense. And what do you think, Mihail, of the uh, possible connection between um, language facility, the ability to speak and learn languages well, and chess ability? Uh, well, I, I hope um, this would not uh, offend the atheists, but um, in, 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 the, in the New Testament, there is a, uh, there is a paragraph. Uh, I think it's uh, in uh, Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians of uh, St. Paul. And he, he mentions three uh, special gifts. Uh, it's the faith uh, above all of them, it's uh, the the it's love. I mean, okay, mm. love in in uh, pure sense, but it's also languages. And uh, you know, actually, I have uh, asked the priest uh, once. Um, uh, okay, he's a chess player, so I asked him, okay, what he thinks about it. And I said, I don't know. It was just for practical reasons uh, in that moment because the apostles they could talk to uh, by magic to to everybody. But I think that uh, he doesn't get it right. I think it's it's deeper than that because when he speaks about languages, you can uh, you can um, see one uh, one issue, one piece of truth from different angles, because each each language uses some different uh, expressions, uh, in, including play of words uh, or uh, to to define something. To describe something, and then it—I um, believe—it keeps you a, a deeper uh, perception of uh, things. And um, well, I think that in chess, uh, well, first, first of all, there is a practical, uh, the practical aspect. I mean, uh, uh, being grown in um, a communist country, of course, the best books uh, my parents could afford were in—I mean, chess books were in Russian. Mm. I mean, the price is uh, a book printed in Britain, uh, for instance, would be like ha half a salary. If, if uh, But uh, Russian books, Soviet books, okay, uh, they were uh, rather cheap. And uh, I had hundreds of them. Wow. And uh, I started, during my army time, I started learning Russian with a chess book and a dictionary. Just, just memorizing a few pages. And I already had a few hundred words in my... Uh, in my uh, vocabulary, and then I developed it uh, gradually. So uh, there is this practical aspect that you can read. Uh, at that time, Russian was essential for me. To I had such fantastic books about great players, their biography. I could I could read. I mean, this is also you know um, 
you can learn from their biographies. You know, you, you learn something, not only from the chess comments. So there is this practical thing, but okay, um, chess is, uh, I mean, I like to make a paraphrase. Uh, chess is like, uh, life is like a game of chess and chess is life itself. They mm-hmm. usually say something about this with theater. Uh, so, I mean, if something this uh, languages uh, issue uh, gives you a deeper perception in normal life, I assume it should also have some impact in, in chess because it's kind of logic and harmony. And, uh, you know, um, I don't think it, it helps less than mathematics because, I, in my opinion, chess is more about uh, harmony than... than um, Maybe mathematics are not so not so closely related. Uh, I don't know, but uh, as Dr. Talash, for instance, said, uh, chess like music and love uh, can make you happy. So it's obviously yeah. about harmony. Yes, it's about harmony. So languages is also kind of you know each language has its own um, universe, and uh, there is some har- harmony, uh, harmon- harmonious uh, uh, beauty in uh, in it. So. Um, no, for instance, uh, as a chess writer, um, I believe that uh, I am held by the fact that I'm an engineer. I graduated from the Polytechnic Institute in Bucharest, but I never worked as an engineer. And still, uh, for a writer, it's somehow important to have some logic, some some system. I mean, not uh, not only the okay the the language and uh, the chess analysis and so on, but you have to build up a system. Uh, I mean, the moves are connected between themselves and the, the games you are showing should be connected somehow. And uh, I think that the technical spirit uh, can help uh, a writer. So, um, um, yes, I believe that chess can be connected with uh, several um, aspects of the scientific uh, world, let's say, like engineering or languages or, okay, maybe also mathematics, maybe. Yeah, because in, in, in mathematics there is only one truth. Right. Uh, chess is maybe a bit trickier, but um, there are moments when, no matter what the engines say, there is only one truth. Uh, <laughs> somehow we, we lose, we, we miss this. We see that uh, according to the engines there are several equivalent continuations, but this is very relative. Uh, there is only one, uh, one uh, truth many times. And do you think that sometimes the truth is not what the engine says? Well, I, I have... Uh, there, there are uh, some examples. Um, uh, I mean, uh, for instance, you know, there is there is a Briar, uh, Briar Spanish variation. Mm-hmm. Uh, when playing her match with Spassky in 93, uh, Judith Polgar uh, produced... Actually, it was not a novelty. It had been played in some obscure Soviet game. And her second le- left sah is found it. Uh, it's the variation with b3, black plays d5, and white plays bishop g5, maintaining the tension in the center. There are four pawns in the center in, in tension. h6, and the bishop goes to h4. And of course, uh, uh, Yudi didn't consider uh, the move g5 seriously, and Spassky didn't play it. Uh, G5 wins the bishop because the bishop has no retreat. And uh, we did one a good game, according to her, to their anal- to her analysis with, with uh, Lev Sahis. And somewhere in around 20, 2004 or 2005, Mamejarov started playing this with black, and he always played G5. And uh, he made some... Okay, he even beat Judith with that. 
And uh, he said, oh, I have analyzed many, many hours this position, and I'm uh, absolutely sure that it's a draw. And of course, it was the computer who thought, uh, uh, you know, now now the engines um, uh, give uh, a plus three for white. And of course, it's completely losing for black. I mean, how can you play g5 to allow knight takes g5 uh, and bishop takes, um, I mean, the sacrifice when everything is weak and uh, the bishop on c2 is already, uh, says the diagonal practic uh, practically open, no? So, uh, with every new generations, generation of programs and uh, computers, we we tend to believe that uh, we master the truth. And um, it's very relative. I remember a game by uh, by Navarra against Wojtaszek. I think it was Navarra with white. Uh, she spoils somehow his structure. It's it's a queenless middle game, and then she goes with the king uh, somehow h2 g3 f4. Eventually, he, his king gets to h8 with four <laughs> rooks on board and everything. He, the king grabs something on the way. Anyway, he wins, and this this was his analysis. And actually, he's losing. When the king is somewhere in on a four, uh, black can win. It's not so obvious. And engines, I didn't check it with uh, new engines, but um, you know, at that time it was his analysis. It was a losing analysis, the same as Mamejarov. I mean, um, um, also there are variations. Um, uh, no, well, okay. There is also the famous case of um, the martial attack. It was Kramnik against Leko during the match. Kramnik mm -hmm. uh, seconds uh, so that uh, uh, engines give a plus three, but that was okay. Some twenty years ago, was it? Uh, engines gave something like plus three, and even though in some time trouble, Leko managed to find the win <laughs> from the position uh, with black from the position uh, she was supposed to resign. So um, now you you can find uh, you can find examples um, and. Uh, yeah, you know, the the fact that uh, uh, players of similar, let, let's talk about the elite, yes, similar chess powers, uh, analyze uh, similar positions with computers of similar strengths, with more or less the same engines, leads to some sort of deper, depersonalizing uh, chess. And uh, they think they master the truth, but uh, in five years, much of uh, what they have played in the opening will be just, uh, you know. Whereas if you play according to the principles and to the common sense, as, Las as Lasker uh, used to say, then you can uh, have a perennial uh, value. Now, by the way, I, I believe that Carlson, um, at least at some point of his career, uh, but uh, even now, I believe that uh, he dominates his generation um, Precisely because his mind remains somehow independent from uh, from the engines, because we tend to become lazy. Uh, yeah, know, uh, we just blitz twenty moves and then um, we wait for something to happen. Uh, and uh, I think that Carlson and and I think that uh, this is how he beat Anand in in the first match. Uh, when he became world champion. There was some talk that he had some training with Kasparov. Kasparov denied it, but he was in Norway before the match. And I think that, uh, of course, Kasparov... Okay, he tried once uh, to train Carlsen, but uh, his results uh, became worse because Carlsen could not play the Kasparov chess. Uh, Kasparov chess is something too... I don't know, too complex. Too, uh, Carlsen liked 
like simple chess somehow. But I believe that uh, if he advised him before the match with Anand, he told him how to stay away from the theoretical things and how to keep the position dry whenever uh, Anand wants to 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 complicate it in the opening. And actually, he played some rare lines in, in that match. And he won some equal uh, positions uh, just like this because they were too dry for Anand and just uh, Carlson's piece of cake. At least if I was to be asked, then uh, I would have advised Carlson to do that. And uh, I would have advised Anand to to take a second, not a theoretical leg or not, uh, I don't know who else was there. Okay, very good theoreticians. But no, some crazy guys like Jobava and Mamejaro, you know. Crazy, I mean, uh, as a style. Not right. that, that, <laughs> I don't have anything about them. But I mean, you know, crazy chess guys. Uh, to To try to make it crazy because then Carlson could be vulnerable. But Anand, uh, no, he wanted to play safe and he lost the match. So, um... okay, uh, I don't remember which was the initial question, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fascinating to hear you uh, talk about chess and all that we can learn from Magnus in particular. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more from GM Mihail Marin. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable is the leading chess education platform known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which uses space repetition to help you remember stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, tactical patterns, opening sequences. It can even help you drill specific end games. And of course, they have a huge library of courses to help you do that. They have courses both from prominent grandmasters like uh, Grandmaster Jordan von Forrest, Magnus Carlsen, Sam Shanklin, and they also have Great material for cl- for club players, from club players. They have stuff for purchase, stuff you can check out for free. So be sure to go to chessable.com and check out what they have that is new. You should know what that sound means. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes a reality. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. So whether you're selling chess courses, chess boards, or something totally unrelated to chess, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. It covers every sales channel, whether it's in-person point of sale system or an all-in-one e-commerce platform platform. It even lets you sell across social media like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth. It gives you complete control over your business. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive course library, Shopify is there to help you every step of the way. What's incredible to me about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take it to the next level. So now it's your turn to get serious about selling to Shopify. So sign up for $1 a month trial period, shopify.com slash chess by using the code chess. You know that they came from perpetual chess. So that's shopify.com slash chess to take your business to the next level today. And we're actually recording this on January 30th, Mihail. So I wanted to pick your brain a bit because I've been chatting with uh, Fide Master Mikhail Ablin. We've done a couple podcasts about Tata Steel, which he was uh, visiting every day. And uh, just uh, listeners probably already know that uh, Anish Giri won in dramatic fashion. But I was just curious if, if you got to follow that much and uh, what you thought of the chess. 
Uh, yes, I, I followed most of the rounds uh, as they were played. Some of them I had to check after, uh, including the last one. I checked after. Uh, uh, what can I say? Um, um, well, for, for uh, Carlson, first of all, with each new tournament, which new year, uh, it's the pressure is somehow bigger. Because, okay, he has won almost, almost I don't know, 95% of the tournaments he has played uh, over the past, I don't know, last uh, 10, 12 years, I lost the count. Uh, maybe because of this, um, he gave up playing in the World Championship. Of course, I wouldn't have done that. But I can understand him. I mean, okay, he's the best-rated player. He wins almost everything. Um, he's clearly the strongest uh, for a long time. And then every, everything depends on 12, on a relatively short match, 12 games. I mean, if he loses that match, he's not a world champion anymore. So probably this is why his play uh, during the, the last few matches was so uh, uninspiring, because uh, somehow the pressure, the fear of losing everything because of 12 games, uh, somehow it, uh, it might have been not fair for him. And um, yeah, what can I say? Um, uh, I don't remember which, which was the first game he lost. Uh, but I, I followed closely his game with Aptu Satorov, uh, with the <laughs> Uzbeki uh, star. Uh, Carlson tried to do something which he does frequently. I mean, um, he knows that if he gets... Okay, he takes some risks sometimes. Uh, he sacrifices for positional reasons. And he knows that uh, if something goes wrong, the opponent would be afraid of winning against him. Afraid, I mean, not physically, but um, somehow, oh, how can you think of beating Carlson? Because he has beaten them too much. Ah, he lost to Giri, actually. You know, that was also a very strange game. And uh, Abdusaro Toro was very, he didn't have such complexes. He had beaten Carlson in rapid chess in the World Rapid World Championship when he actually became a champion, Abdusaro. Um, he, okay, uh, he played a good game, then he, they reached a queen ending, and I believe that Carlson went down too too quickly in that, that queen ending. Um, somehow he's, he played the move without giving a check, and when he got checks, the king didn't go where it should go. So uh, that was somehow strange for me because, okay, Carlson is supposed to have a good endgame uh, instinct. But uh, maybe it was simply two days where he didn't feel uh, okay. Even though with Giri, it must have been something deeper. Because uh, he played some relatively rare line with black, uh, with his king between the rooks. And then he starts jumping around with the knights, only only with the knights. I mean, there are such things like development. <laughs> and I don't know uh, how long his uh, analysis was, but uh, Giri didn't do anything so special. I mean, he would... Those things that a normal master would would do. I mean, rugby one and before, of course, you you play that. Then he was accurate in the end, but okay, almost every reasonable move would win after that. It was already so. Um, I can understand what happened to, against uh, Abdul Satorov. Um, Carlson is not used to this kind of um, resistance and resilience somehow, uh, and uh, insistence uh, of an opponent when he has an advantage. But with Giri, it's, it's strange. Um, maybe it's something connected with what we were talking about, the computers, whether the computers really uh, possess the truth. 
<laughs> so maybe yes. Um, yeah. But at the same time, we can see that. Okay, why uh, everybody should admire Carlson? You may agree with uh, what he's saying on publicly or not. You may like his style or not. But you, you must understand that he's a player. He's yeah. a player. I mean, he's a, every game for him is important because he lost two games in a row. He was on minus one. What was he? It was uh, it was the end of the world, and he managed to fi- to tie for second. I mean, um, yeah, he's a player. Could go there. And play and and want, sincerely want to to win as if it was the last game of his life. For, for that you have yeah. to, to advise. Yeah, and he's it's impressive. Course, I mean, he's focusing. Of course, for him, chess is really. I mean, um, um, this is why he he wins many bad positions, equally equal positions, um, because he he's there. He he's playing, and um, of course that's that's very important. Yeah, and now he says he's going to take a break from classical chess. Um, you know, he's mentioned that a few times, and as you mentioned, dropped out of the world championship cycle. So, Mihal, I'm starting to worry that we will never that he's receding into the background in classical chess. That we may not see him more than once or twice a year, and that even though he talks about reaching 2,900, I'm I'm worried that he may go in the other direction. Do you think he'll be able to maintain his motivation uh, at classical chess in particular? Maybe he needs some. Re- he, he's. I didn't uh, read the interview, but I understand that he, he would take a break. It, it could be yeah. one or two years. No. Well, he's relatively young. Don't forget that Fisher had uh, two com- at least two complete breaks. Uh, a few a few years, he didn't play anything for uh, twice. It was, and. Then the first tournament he played, it was the USSR versus World match. And he beat Petrosian by 3-1. to one. So, um, um, uh, I, I think uh, Carlson is um, okay, similarly motivated as, as Fisher. Uh, and he, if he decided to take half a break like this, I mean, just one to, for one or two years, um, uh, he may come back. I mean, he's young. Mm. He, yeah, because it's it, there is this pressure. Um, uh, and okay, what what can I say? Of course, he doesn't owe anything to anybody. I mean, to the public, to his fans. I mean, he the same as Fisher didn't uh, owe anything. I mean, he Fisher did a huge effort to to beat all the Soviets, uh, to win nineteen games in a row in Grandmaster Company, and not just average Grandmaster, just Top grandmasters, no, and then to to beat Spassky after giving him the, the odds of two points, uh, and of course uh, this effort uh, was too big for him, maybe because he was just a human being after all. I mean, strong physically, tall, uh, fanatic, but maybe it was too much. And then okay, um, uh, then it was um, he could not play uh, anymore. Of course, Carlson's uh, conditions were uh, somewhat better because he has he had a lot of support from his family. Uh, he had trainers. Uh, he had uh, sponsors starting with a certain point. So Fisher was all alone. Um, and uh, but still, I, I can imagine that if he wants to take a break, I mean, uh, the chess fans, the the public can just hope that he comes back. But okay. 
he cannot be criticized really i mean uh, yeah whatever he does yeah i it's it's his choice for sure although you refer to him as as young Mihail, and i agree that 32 is young by by life standards but by elite chess standards do you consider 32 still to be young well it depends on uh, on everybody for instance don't forget that um uh when she was over six uh, 60 something Korchina was still in top 25 and uh Polgaevsky, actually Polgaevsky, uh, a bit earlier uh, the same maybe top 10 she was but okay Korchina, we, we already talked about um, uh it was more than 60 60 it was some somewhere in the, the late 90s Korchina was born in 31. Yeah, so it was 65, 67, uh, uh, his age. So uh, he was still in top 25 of the world. And this was, these were new times. People started working with the computers. And actually, Korchina, I heard that he never really got friends with, with the computer. And then in the 70s, he won, for instance, this tournament in, uh, what was it, Bill, where he beat Grishuk, Gelfand, uh, uh, Swidler. By the way, he beat Gelfand by playing the Slav defense with Black practically for the first time in his life. <laughs> and then with with 80, he beat Caruana with Black. I mean, yeah, not, famously. Not beat, just smashed, you know, pushing all the pawns. So, I mean, okay, uh, what do you mean? At, at 30, uh, Korchinoi, uh, according to his own uh, confession, started to... He understood that he was not playing the chess who would repre represent uh, his uh, personality. And he started to learn the ABC of chess again. <laughs> and um, he considered that he was really strong at, I mean, really built up as a player when he was 40. And actually, he played the three matches with Karpov uh, between the age of 43 and 50. Yeah. And came close to 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 win at least once. So, so close, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did yeah, you ever meet Korchnoi, Mihail? I have played with him three times. Uh, three draws. Okay, let's hear yes. the stories. Okay. Uh, well, uh, actually, you know, you know, I have I have played with some world champions. Yeah, I played with Karpov, with with Tal, with Spassky. With, okay, with Halivar, with Ponomaryov um, from the newer. Uh, but I mean, from the classical ones, I have played with some. Um, and I I must say that uh, uh, even though the game not always ended uh, well for me. I could feel when they didn't like the position. Mm -hmm. I could feel. They, they wanted to dissimulate it, but I could feel that were, they were uncomfortable. And actually, when I played with Karpov, uh, okay, he eventually beat me, but he was in big danger. Uh, I thought that he, if he had been so transparent during his matches with Kasparov, Kasparov would have eaten him alive. Probably it was because he was already not so young. But Korchinoi was by 20 years older than him. And I played with Korchinoi after I played with Karpov. So it was mm -hmm. a big... I mean, uh, Karpov was maybe 50 or something. But Korchinoi was really, uh, you know, uh, uh, really getting old. Uh, yeah, we, first time we played in 2000 when he was 69. And then two other games. Um, uh, last time he was 78, I believe. So, um, yeah, I, I had... Each, each game has some small story. For instance, um, uh, in our first game, I, I managed to, to get a good position. And now I saw that I could enter an endgame with an extra pawn. It's four against three. 
for rooks, I have a knight, he has a bishop. He seems to be active, but it's temporary. Somehow I can, uh, he cannot threaten anything concrete. And I thought for a long time, and I didn't go for that variation, but he was, he was so quiet. They brought him coffee. He said, Dankeschön in German. He had his coffee. He was very... Um, and I didn't go for that variation. And then suddenly the position became completely equal. And he even... He felt so, uh, so at home. It was a rook ending. And he started to make long... You know, he became an artist, like a painter, you know, with gestures, with <laughs> long... Uh, it, it was a draw, but I, I, I fear that I might be worse. Especially that he was a, a master of the rook endings. And after the game... Um, he told me, you should have gone for that. I mean, if you don't win, if it's not winning, bad luck. And you know, you know how much you can learn from, from such a... Uh, but I, I could not feel that he was afraid of that. Maybe that was... A, because it's a simple combination. I just... It's two, a two-move combination. I get uh, I get opponent. Uh, the only question is if if I have chances to win the endgame or not. Yes, but okay, I don't have anything better. And there are some winning chances there. The second game... Uh, it was a tournament. Uh, it had the all the games had to be played with the Catalan opening. It was the thematical. Uh, so uh, I play with him, uh, and uh, I have white. No, and he plays some old-fashioned line, and he plays some some queen c8, some sort of um, passive move. Uh, by the way, after uh, I came to the to the conclusion that. In those years, he didn't remember anything. Hmm. It was just playing from his understanding. Because also the first from the first game and the second game, I'm sure that he didn't even even in openings he had been playing all his life. I'm a, I'm sure that after move seven or ten, he barely remember. Uh, but uh, he he knew how to play. You know that that uh, that was helpful. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> so okay, I get a slightly better position. But at some point, um, and, and he's, he's a bit like this. I, he was a, the kind of player who'd move, make small, like, sudden movements during the game when, when it was exciting. No, it didn't really disturb, but you could feel that he was like, like um, walking on, on something hot. Or, and um, then I understand that he solved all the problems. And I offered the draw. He didn't answer. But suddenly I was invaded but by some sort of you know, sensation like like peace, you know. Like uh, you know, every like sunset so peacefully and and that I understood that was him. Now he was sure that he solved his problems. Uh-huh. And, and he started playing. Okay, I had to be careful not to uh not to be worse. It was a draw. We started to analyze, uh and I, I said, okay, maybe maybe maybe. I offered the draw too early, I said. And he said something like, oh, like if he hadn't hear, heard me. And I know that uh, he used this, uh, this thing. You know, there is an anecdote that uh, he play, he was playing in Bucharest. He had won the tournament with big distance, but there was still one round to, round to go. And he plays some with some Cuban guy or whatever. And the Cuban guy offers a draw uh, three times and on move to 23, he resigns. Cortini doesn't answer. And uh, the guy said, okay, but why were you playing for a win if you had already won the tournament? Uh, there was no rating in uh, those years. And Cortini said, oh, but you should have offered. Oh, but I have offered three times. Oh, I didn't hear. <laughs> so 
<laughs> and no, the, the last game was is the funniest. Uh, he, I was again with White, and uh, he played an interesting novelty, and the game was very complex. But then, you know, I had just written an article about Korchinoy's technique in endings with two bishops versus knight and bishop, eventually with rooks on board. And I, I get one of those positions. Uh, me, I, I had the two bishops. So I wanted to show him that I had learned something from his games and that I can win <laughs> this end game. But then at some point I, I do something and I allow him to exchange the rooks. He takes my rook and offers a draw. Of course, I didn't want to. It was still better for me somehow, optically. But uh, for politics, I said, I would like to, to play. And after one minute, of course, I had to take the rook. I said, I would like to play. And then I took the rook. And he said, uh, you would like to play. It was my precise word. You would like to play, huh? Our, uh, our, uh, looks, we looked into each other's eyes. And, okay, I... Um, think he wanted to say uh, how do their piece of uh, whatever to to play against me if I offer a draw. But of course that would not stand the situation. And then he changed the subject. Then you should tell something to me. It's against the feeder rules to move without answering anything. Of course that, that's not true. And I told him, but I told you that uh, uh, I would like to sing and I would like to play. You told me, huh? Okay, in this moment, the arbiter approached. So the discussion was over. Okay, then he thinks uh, for 45 minutes, it was after uh, the control. And he makes a move, and it's it looks like a risky move, but I think for uh, 45 minutes, and I, I understand that I have nothing, and actually I have to make a concession not to, to be worse even. And I take on G6, and I offer a draw. And he answers immediately. And now I start to think, well, um, okay, he wants to prove me a few things. First of all, that he doesn't have, because his, his position was still horrible. I mean, on, on, on three, <laughs> you know, he was staying on three ranks. Uh, he was dominated, but okay, little material, so no, no chance uh, to win for me. Yes, and he wants to prove me several things. First of all, that he doesn't need to be offered a draw to make a draw in this position. Secondly, he wanted to prove that that his, he, he, he didn't hear me the first time. Uh -huh. which is a, Because he answered with my own words. I'm sure he heard me. And I, was, I said, okay, he's not young. Uh, he must be hungry. He was, his wife was waiting in a playing hall, Petra, uh, to, to go to dinner. Next day was the, the last round uh, in the morning. So he has all the reasons to accept. But he wants to prove these principal things. So this is why he's still he's still here with me. Okay, everything very nice, but I'm in the same situation. I'm also hungry. Uh, I also <laughs> have a role in the morning. My first wife was also waiting for me in the playing hall. So I cannot offer a draw again because uh, that would be against the rules. So then I found some repair. No, I could win a pawn with opposite color bishops, obvious draw, but then she would ask, what are you playing for? So I, I, I found a, a move repetition. And I told him, okay, it's... Uh, Oh, but okay, of course I... Uh, yes, but I have offered. Oh, I didn't hear that. <laughs> and uh, no, after that, we had dinner together. Uh, uh, he even said cheers to me in Romanian. Uh, I, I drank a glass of wine. He didn't because he was with Petra. Uh, 
So uh, <laughs> I'm sure that if he was alone, he would have taught me one or two things about about <laughs> wine and not only. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so funny. No, I mean, uh, sorry that the story was so long, but each, each game had something. I mean, he was really above most of 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 them all. I mean, uh, psychologically and, uh, you know, yeah. I, I could not, I mean, I even if I could read him, what can you do? I mean, uh, you are somehow helpless, no? Even if you read him, if you don't go in the, to, for the line with an extra pawn, uh, then it's uh, no use. I mean, uh, so, uh, so you, you're asking whether Carlson is uh, young with 32. I mean, okay. <laughs> The last game, uh, this uh, this conflictive game, okay, he was seventy nine, and he was in te- uh, intentionally sitting there with me just to prove that uh, to prove something. You understand that it was late. Yeah, you know? I don't know if Carlson has that in him though <laughs> to be doing that at seventy nine. <laughs> um, but it's a it's an amazing story, and like you say, it really illustrates when you if you sit down to play courts, you, you've got to be ready for psychological warfare. So I'm I'm curious, Mihail, how did you feel? Like if you were like, especially as you've played him more than once, when you see that you're playing him, how did it feel? No, of course, uh, you know uh, there was a time, um, uh, short one after the communist times, when I had some problems when uh, playing with um, players uh, who were okay, the main heroes in the Soviet magazines, for instance, or like this. But uh, by the year 2000, when I started, uh, I had, uh, after which I had these uh, games with Korchnoi, I didn't have this uh, this complex. So for me, it was uh, just uh, happiness and uh, you know um, uh, joy to I mean to to play against such an uh, such an idol. And uh, uh, actually, there were only these two or three minutes, which are conflictive. Okay. Uh, Otherwise, he he was very correct. Um, I and I cannot say that I was affected by by this incident. It was uh, my thoughts were just as I told you. I mean, uh, look what 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 a guy, uh, what a guy at seventy eight. He wants to prove something. Uh, and um, no, I, I would say that um, no. If also in in analysis, he was. Um, he was very radical. For instance, uh, that Catalan game, he would very uh, quickly conclude, no, this is lost. It was not lost. It was better for me a bit. But he was <laughs> that it was lost for him. For him, for him. I mean, uh, he was right. uh, somehow he, he didn't want to analyze that for, for him. Um, and also he had the habit of saying, let's try this move. Just in analyze. Just in analyze. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so... That he cannot be attacked, that uh, his move was uh, was stupid or whatever. No, he um, the last game we didn't analyze because it was too late already. Uh, but uh, oh, I actually I not to it all the ch- champions did they have such a, for it, of, of course Carpo was uh, was winning from the beginning after he beat me. No, of course, but I knew that he was uh, shaking of fear at some point and he was in some some big danger at some point. Uh, but of course, after after afterwards, he was uh, winning all the way. Of course, no, that was typical for him. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's um, uh, somebody told me somebody from the elite that um, 
okay, what, what a bad guy. I mean, okay, to something negative. This Karpov, because um, uh, after uh, each game, he wants to analyze. And he would not, uh, somehow he would analyze, analyze and he would try to prove that um, he was better. And um, actually, I think that uh, the, the man simply loved chess. And okay, probably it was also a psychological trick. Uh, he wanted to keep his clients. I mean, if he beat somebody, or even if he didn't beat, he wanted to prepare him for his next loss uh, somehow. But actually, he was very good in analysis. The problem was not that he wanted to prove to that he was better. The problem was that he was beating almost everybody in in <laughs> analysis. I mean, he he kept his focusing uh, the same focusing level of focusing as during the game. And uh, I don't think, I mean, okay, do the same if you think uh, it helps, but not uh, everybody can. So for Karpov, chess was really serious. Only that he was, he was not a scientist like Korchinai, but he was a player. He had some talent, some ease to, I mean, he said, okay, I see this idea, I believe in it, it should work, and goes there. Uh, he wouldn't care if it's the objectively strongest. He would just go there and he would do it very well. You just uh, move well, you know, move after move, and uh, um, and uh, apparently, uh, before uh, his first match with Karpov, uh, Kasparov got the following uh, advice: never analyze with him after the game. He huh. will depress you. He will kill you. You would not have any chance. And uh, I think yes, it was. I don't know if Karpov was doing it intentionally, but I. Maybe it was also studied, but I think he simply loved to do it. Mm-hmm. He simply loved to <clears throat> just play, you know, let's play the game again and again and again. I mean, okay, uh, I give you another chance. Um, actually, I think it's a beautiful um, way of relating to, to chess. And we're recording this, Mihail, on uh, Boris Baski's 86th birthday. Um, and, oh, really? Sti- yeah, he's still uh, still around. Although Emil Sotovsky tweeted that he's not in the best of health, which you yes, know, no, that's but been... it's a long time. It's a long time. He had uh, it's fifteen years that he has been in the wheelchair. Yes, or uh... yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, um, any stories to go with your game game or games against uh, for the former world champion Spassky? Uh Well, um, uh, we played a game, uh, only one game in the. Uh, uh, high league of the French team championship. It was top dues, I believe, called them. It was, a, I was playing with Black. Uh, I played the Benoni. And he replied with a very aggressive three-pawn attack. But after the opening, mm-hmm. he offered a draw. So the game lasted half an hour. And then we were analyzing for three hours. <laughs> That's great. And uh, he, he told me that, look, uh, I have never lost interest to chess. But little by little, okay, uh, of course, after uh, I lost to Fisher, uh, well, he, he was still a uh, uh, candidate finalist in 77. Uh, he lost to Korchnoi. And he played uh, for the Soviets at the Olympiads a few y- more years. Uh, and he was uh, playing uh, elite tournaments. But he said that, you know, little by little, I um, uh, I, I love chess, but it's now I like more to analyze, to, you know, to... And... Um, uh, then uh, we happened to be in the uh, the same team. He came to our team in Belfort when we qualified for the Europe Cup in Linz, Austria. And uh, then I remember that um, 
uh, we had long uh, chats, uh, okay, with the whole team or only uh, me with him. Um, he, yeah, he, he was, uh, you know, um, he was always talking about principal things. He, he would not criticize move or uh, moves or other things or games. He would uh, just be disturbed if some young player uh, of the moment, he, he, you know, he would make a gesture like this with his fist. He would just raise his arm like this. I don't know how to describe it uh, without video. Mm-hmm. But like, just like uh, 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 lifting a, a heavy, you know, uh, weight uh, that you have, you know, he was very sporty. He used to be atla- at- athlete in uh, during his youth. So I mean that you have to keep the level, the, the principal level. You know, you have to, you have to be true to yourself and to the correct things. So, um, um, but um, yes, I uh, my contacts with him were not so um, uh, so intense. But okay, he was pl- a pleasant uh, companion, of course. I mean, okay. Uh, it's it's maybe it's not polite to say that okay i was his companion not right uh, it, but i mean okay he, it was very pleasant to be to be around him and, yeah uh, and there's lots of stories like that of short draws later in his career um but what a legend uh, yes yes um with tal i had uh, okay i played a game with him but that was only that okay he offered the draw then i offered the draw then he offered the draw okay uh, actually, it was not such a bad game. Uh, it was a draw in uh, Manila Interzonal, but then um, I, I was happy to to spend a lot of time with him in '92 in Sevilla. It was just half a year before he died, or maybe less. It, he died that that same year, and uh, uh, we were invited by the organizer um, uh, to these uh, marisquerias, you know, or tapas. This typical uh, oh, nice, market. yeah, yes, and. Uh, uh, he won a game against uh, a Spanish uh, international master. He later became a, a grandmaster, Mario Gomez. And he, it was a brilliant win, and it it, it got the 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 video prize, uh, the best game prize uh, in the tournament. But Tal was so unhappy <clears throat> because you know he he had reached a fantastic positional advantage on both wings. With a blocking knight on c5, with some initiative on the other, it it was it was a dream. I mean, he played really superb uh, superb chess. His health was uh, bad, but uh, he played a very good strategic game. And then what does he do? The knight from c5 goes to g5 to prepare a combination with a queen sacrifice, and ev- eventually it worked. But actually, it should have lost a pawn. If uh, his opponent uh, reacted uh, correctly, and Tal was so unhappy, he said, "What? I, I spoiled the game." I'm... Because there is a, a phrase by him that uh, when he was forty or something, I could teach one or two things uh, to uh, that Tal who became a world champion, the young Tal. Mm. I could, and now he was, you know, like uh, talking to to his younger uh, himself. Who eventually came out after he played a brilliant strategy game? Came out to do something, uh, you know, just for the beauty. Uh, and uh, I admire him because, okay, uh, uh, okay, the man could just relax. Uh, he was only fifty-four, I think, fifty-four, fifty. Uh, he's born thirty-seven. He was, he had not turned fifty-five yet. Uh, but he, okay, he's, he was ruined physically. He was ruined. So okay, it was basically a, an old man. 
I mean, he could relax. Look, I, I've won a beautiful game against a young guy. I'm still good. I can still do the trick. But no, he he was angry because he had played against the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the result uh, was not uh, not so important for him. I guess that's why he that's why he reached the level he did. That that sort of attitude. Yes. Um, yeah, actually, he had some good times um, in the late seventies. Uh, he was a uh, Karpov second in uh, Baguio <clears throat> during his match with Karpov's match with Korchnoi. And uh, Karpov wrote that apparently for both of us this was very profitable because they somehow completed each other. And in that year, Tal won uh, the Leningrad interzonal with a distance, a margin of three and a half points, I believe. Of course, these were long tournaments, but uh, not like nowadays. But okay, three and a half points, you know. It's something like Fisher uh, kind yeah. of. Uh, Dominant. And uh, then he shared the first uh, place um, with Karpov uh, in Montreal. This was the uh, star tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was ten players, uh, double double Robin, uh, double round Robin. Uh, but with the exception of Korchine, who was boycotted and making all the strongest players in the world played. So um, yeah, in '79, um, he was not looking young at all, actually. <laughs> He was 42 only, but uh, he he was not looking young at all. Uh, f- yes, 42. Um, I mean, he was already... Um, he had made the first step to to the end, yes, but he played uh, very well. Um, so... Um, then later he won the Blitz, uh, the first, the, not the second uh, World Blitz Championship uh, in uh, St. John, 88. When Kasparov got eliminated yeah. in the semifinals or quarterfinals, I don't remember. So, um, yeah, <clears throat> he was self critical, but also could not control his genius, his uh, instinctive, instinctive, you know, um, manifestations of, the, of his genius. Yeah, so, he, he lived as he played. <laughs> um, yeah, yes. A bit reckless. Um, well, Mihail, we need to take a break to hear from our sponsors, but this has been amazing, and I look forward to uh, more stories in a moment. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess has an algorithm that gathers your games from the major chess playing sites like Chess.com and Lee Chess, and then gives you actionable intel on how to improve your game. It evaluates different phases of the game, tells you how you're doing with certain openings, and they're constantly rolling out new features to make Aim Chess even better. Some of the new ones include a blunder preventer drill that you can do, and they've now got blindfold exercises where you can work on your chess visualization skills. So be sure to check out Aim Chess if you have not already. And if you decide to subscribe, then use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. You can also click on the link in the show description to aimchess.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
And we are back. And Mihail, there's so much I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Um, but I've got to start with the, with the biggest highlights, which of course is, as you alluded to earlier, you've had quite a fruitful collaboration with Yuta Polgar. I'm a huge fan of her three books with uh, Quality Chess. I even did a podcast with Jen Shahadi about uh, How I Beat Fisher's Record, and obviously a fan of hers just generally. So let's start at the beginning. What was your first encounter with uh, with the Polgar sisters? Well, um, um, I saw I saw them uh, for the first time in '88 <clears throat> at the Thessaloniki Olympiad. It was it was also their first Olympiad when they won the the Polgar sisters with uh, Ildiko Madel. They won the Women Olympiad, but uh, I didn't spoke to, uh, I didn't speak uh, to them uh, then, of course. Um, uh, but, uh, and then um, in 1990, I uh, I won uh, uh, my group of the zonal tournament, so I qualified <coughs> for the second. It was in Stara Zagora, Bulgaria. I qualified uh, to, for the interzonal uh, for the second time. I did it three years earlier, and. Um, uh, in that tournament, uh, in my group, uh, Juja was also playing. Um, uh, okay, our, our game uh, ended in a draw. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think they, uh, you know, they had many sparring partners uh, um, over their uh, years. And um, as a rule, they would choose some player who proved something. And two, two weeks later, I played in uh, in Budapest. It was a strong open. I was. I was not in the best shape after. I mean, I was so happy that I won the zonal tournament, the my group, and that I got to the interzonal. That um, I was a bit below my uh, my level, but um, in the last round I was playing with uh, uh, what's his name? Um, I forgot his name. A uh, Soviet Russian, okay, uh, grandmaster. Uh, ah, Barsov. Barsov. He was not a grandmaster then. I had. Played the Benoni and I had four pawns for the exchange. I mean, it was winning. And then I, I was working while he was thinking. It was the last round. It would have given me a prize and not such a bad result. And then I see Susan Polgar. And she comes to me and she asks me, by the way, after the tournament, do, do we want to, to stay with us for a week or 10 days and uh, just to play chess? Of course, I was. I mean, I changed <laughs> a few words with her after our game uh, two weeks, weeks earlier, but uh, uh, I even remember that uh, there was a free day uh, in uh, in Stara Zagora. There was some some party or whatever, and um, I know that my colleagues, my older colleagues, convinced me to to invite her to dance in Stara Zagora, which is completely stupid, of course. Uh, I approached. I said. She made some uh, scared gesture, of course. I mean, it was somehow very stupid because, okay, we're uh, chess players there, but okay. So, but so basically, we never uh, spoke uh, uh, before that uh, more than a few words. Um, and then, uh, of course, I accepted the, the invitation. I was so happy that I, I got mated in seven moves from my winning position. <laughs> uh, but then I, I visited them uh, for uh, three times in 1990. Uh, between one one week and ten days, something like that. And uh, I was analyzing with Susan, Juja. Uh, but uh, we were playing blitz, uh, all of us. I mean, uh, in the breaks, uh, I would play with Judith. With uh, I remember that um, at that time, Juja was really strong in blitz. Uh, she should dominate me. Okay, not by 
pic uh, distance, but okay, she was stronger than me in Blitz. With Sofia, I had to be careful, but I, I was playing better. And with Judith, I just had to keep the position close. And she, okay, but she was young. <laughs> she was 13, 13, 14, okay. Right. Going on 14. No, she was very strong, actually. She was, she was higher rated than me. But in Blitz, if I just block the position, she would just uh, kill herself. So, no, and uh, of course, we uh, we become very close friends. Um, uh, we were telling jokes. Okay, then uh, we lost contacts for, for some years, for actually for many years. Um, and then around 2000, 2001, uh, already Judith uh, wrote to me whether I uh, want to come to Budapest to just to train. And then uh, we started seeing each other two, three times a year. Sometimes we would analyze openings, but mostly uh, end games. We, uh, we found many interesting things in, in known end games, many new, new things. We changed some evaluations, uh, at least from practical point of view. Um, and then uh, there was this moment. Of course, uh, we had a very friendly relation. And then uh, there was this moment when she gave birth to her first child, Oliver. Uh, that was 2004, I believe. And this cost her a break of uh, 14 months from tournament play. And then uh, before her first tournament after this break in Vaikanze 2005, uh, she asked me whether I, was, I wanted to be her second. And uh, of course I accepted. I mean, okay, that was uh, uh, no matter how much we had worked together and uh, how good friends we were. Uh, I mean, to be a second of an elite player, uh, it was something special. No? And she confessed to me that, you know, all these guys, they don't lo like to have a woman among them. They would like to kill me now after 14 months. So I need to, I need somebody who is close to me, uh, psychologically, emotionally, to, to stand this. And actually she did well. She she won three games and lost two, so plus one. Mm, that time, okay, Vikanze was... Nowadays they are, um, I mean, okay, uh, not all the very best are there. They, um, they choose the stuff to be to uh, to be interesting somehow. Uh, they invite from India, from I mean to have a big uh, representation of uh, interesting player. But at that time, okay, uh, uh, almost everybody was uh, was playing. Kasparov didn't play that. He had yes, he retired soon after that, after Linares in, in the same year. Yes, so. Um, Actually, yes, then uh, we went to, uh, to Sofia, the tournament in Sofia. And uh, actually, she reached her high, highest position in the ranking uh, with these two tournaments, highest position ever, uh, eight, number eight, eighth uh, place. After these tournaments where I was her second, of course, um, it's okay. Of course, I, I, I probably also helped her by giving a second Sort of second point of view with with chess chess wise no, um, uh, but I believe it was more um, because I um, I somehow let her just dictate. I mean, okay, if she felt like doing this, we would do this. If she uh, if she felt like preparing a lot that morning, we'd prepare. If she if after a loss should like to go for for shopping, we just go to shopping. She would ask me, oh, doesn't this look cute on me? I said, 
it does. But it's so expensive. Of course, we shouldn't uh, buy that. So, I mean, you know, this this kind of thing, I mean, whatever she said, I would uh, find something. In, so I think this is because when you are playing, you don't need somebody to contradict you. Mm-hmm. Unless you say something very stupid that you have to you want to play with black uh, e4, h5, d4, a5. Then, of course, you have to shout to, to the player. No, but of course, such thing uh, would, would never uh, happen with uh, Judith. So, um, oh, yes, and after after that, uh, we transformed this uh, collaboration. Uh, I mean, we wrote these uh, three books uh, together. Uh, they lasted a few years, actually. I went many times to Budapest. She even came once to Bucharest for two weeks. So, um, <clears throat> yes, and um, now uh, during the last Olympiad, uh, uh, I was her partner in uh, commenting as, uh, in the commenting job. Uh, so um, uh, yes, we still have contacts. Uh, uh, actually, we are driving a lot, and sometimes uh, we stop by uh, her place when on our way to to Europe. I mean, to Western Europe. So, but okay, um, uh, we really worked a lot on chess, you know. I mean, uh, and in in the end game, I think um, I might hurt her. Yeah, she talks, of course, in her books about having to learn the end games. I mean, of course, she's such a gifted tactician that that to give her some a flair in the end game, but but more well, on the no. T- but she, she, she uh, as a child uh, already she had a huge end game culture. Actually. Endgame studies, right? <laughs> yes, yes, uh, studies and also theoretical positions. Oh, really? She, uh, no, no, no. She, uh, with ten years, should uh, know almost everything. What is basic, or um, so? No, but we are analyzing more complex endings. Okay. And uh, um, and uh, you know what surprised me to her that um, I would not name now anybody, but her. He's some strong player. Uh, she had been analyzing with him, and she said, "Well, of course, uh, she has. He had this guy has a concept. He understands chess. While I'm only a practical player." Hmm. And I told her, "What do you mean? I mean, okay, this guy have plus two against him, and it could have him plus four. I mean, the guy is a practical player. I don't think he understands chess so well. You shouldn't underestimate yourself." Because what, what was my feeling when analyzing with Judith sometimes? I consider myself a tricky player. Um, so I make a move. It creates some ideas, whatever, but it has some trick. So I, I play at two ends. She would think for half a minute. She would make a move. She would look at me. And I would know that she, she read my mind and that she avoided the trick and she parried the threats and kept the trumps of her own position. And somehow I understood that she was waiting for me to acknowledge that. So <laughs> that was the kind of, you know, I mean, uh, uh, she had some, uh, she has some mixed uh, concrete and abstract thinking, I believe. Um, only because she was so gifted, talented, I, I don't think. Um, uh, it's right for her to say that she was weaker uh, strategically. And Mihel, I've been uh, preparing a podcast with my friend, uh, Dr. Christopher Chabri on San Luis 2000 
five, been uh, reading the excellent quality chess book. And of course, your name comes up in that as you got to travel to Argentina with Judith for that tournament. Obviously, the, the tournament didn't go the way she wanted, but um, but it's the pictures look amazing. Like the the chess was amazing. So I'm curious what your memories of that tournament in particular are. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, Judith prob- was probably overtrained there. I mean, she should have taken a break <clears throat> two weeks before the tournament and just go somewhere with her husband to, you know, forget about chess. But she also had uh, her f- first child, Oliver, who was uh, one, one year old already. Okay, a little bit more. And also, also okay, um, uh, actually, I, I advised her to, to change one of her openings with black for something uh, with the same move order. But um, I mean, the, uh, apart from the Nidorf, she also played, used to play the Paulson. Paulson with knight c6, queen c7, and a6. Okay, they call it Taimarov, but Taimarov is actually something different. Knight g7. And um, I analyzed something uh, which starts with the Paulson move order for her uh, and uh, reaches uh, the Scheveningen after avoiding the Keres attack and some other uh, dangerous things. And actually, it was quite viable. And... uh, I, I spent a lot of time a bit before the championship to do that, but then um, an older second of her advised, oh, but why do you need that? You have the Rider and the Paulson, whatever. And uh, it started badly because she lost two Paulson games uh, in a line that she had prepared, but which was a little bit suffering. You know, at some point, Black plays Knights with the Bishop on before, Knights is 6 is 7. I mean, it, it doesn't look like chess somehow. It uh, it looks like an experiment, but not um, somehow. Uh, and okay, uh, Anand and Leko just uh, uh, just beat her. And of course, okay, she won a brilliant game with an analysis uh, she had done not, without me uh, against Kazinjanov. But that was somehow the only uh, real reason for for joy. So uh, yeah, it was a pity because. Um, uh, that was a special event for her. I mean, okay, uh, the only woman to have played in the final tournament of the World Championship. Uh, yeah. Okay, being in top eight in other times would have meant to be in the candidates' matches. Now it would be to be in the candidates' tournament. So it's anyway something uh, not easy to to achieve. But um, yeah, she she blamed it on this thing that she was too tired of chess. She didn't relax before, and it was also not so inspired that she was repeating that opening which she had played before, and the opponents obviously prepared against. Right. Um, the Shevardnikov would have come as a surprise somehow. I mean, uh, for two games it would have been uh, okay, probably, but okay. What? Um, uh, but you know, yes, and. Uh, Probably it was also, you know, she also made a big effort. I mean, she was playing professional chess for how many years? I mean, starting with a young age. And now times have changed and this opening preparation, I mean, okay, your genius is, your genius is good, but uh, you have to put up so much opening preparation with the engines that, uh, you know, for a player grown in the classical times, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit different, so... 
So, so it sounds uh, like you weren't surprised when she retired. Uh, actually, she told me in advance a, f- a few months before. No, because I, I know that she was. Uh, I mean, she retired after losing to Sam Shankland, but it was not before the, because of that game. She told me two months before the Olympia that uh, after the Olympians she would uh, retire. I was, of course, uh, disappointed, but I could understand her because she had dropped from the elite. Uh, she was something like top 50 or maybe not even already. Uh, top seven, maybe number seven in the world. I don't, I don't remember, but she had dropped massively. But the point was that um, she uh, just fulfilled, uh, she, uh, she had just been the strong, the highest rated woman for 25 years, a quarter of a century. And she considered that that would be a good moment to just um, uh, just quit. Because, okay, if you had such a rating of top 50 or top 70, you don't get invited to top tournaments. It means you don't... It's not the same feeling, you know. You have to start playing open tournaments. When the first round you might may play against a relatively weak player, maybe the first two rounds. Of course, your fee would be not that high. In uh, I mean, it would be like losing money, you know, um, uh, in open tournaments. And you are not sure that you are, you are gaining your rating back because uh, of the big rating difference. I mean, you are twenty six seventy or whatever she had then, and you play with an average of twenty four hundred. I mean, that's not funny, uh, and it's it's risk. It's more risky than. Uh, so uh, I understood her that mm, the charm of chess was not the same when after dropping from uh, after having played with Kasparov, Karpov, Korchnoi, uh, Spassky, Timan, Topalov, uh, Kramnik, you know, all the very top guys. I mean, you, you cannot start playing uh, in open tournaments. Somehow it's uh, it's painful. Yeah. Well, Korchnoi didn't have that problem. But, uh, okay, but Judith is more equilibrated as a woman. I mean, okay, she, she's a good mother. She, uh, with Korchina, okay, he, his second wife was, okay, he had a son from the first marriage, but I don't think he had much contact with him. Uh, and his second wife was dedicated to him. I mean, they together had only one purpose, even when he was 70, that he gives his best uh, at the board. So, uh, Chess was really his life. While you did okay, uh, she could also enjoy life. Uh, uh, her husband has a job of himself now. While with Cortinate, things were different. So, Cortinate um, <clears throat> didn't shy away from playing in, tuna- in open tournaments, of course. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, her kids were, were pretty young at the time, and uh, that certainly yeah. changes one's priorities. Um, and Let's uh, finally discuss your your books a bit, Mihail. Um, okay. So you tell this story in um, the Bent Larson book that you narrowly missed the chance that he was a hero of yours, and you narrowly missed the chance to meet him. Uh, I, th- I think I, I not, but I think I never uh, met him. I was convinced that I saw him at some Olympiad, but m- maybe he, maybe he he was there in '88 as a correspondent. I don't know. Because I have I have it in in my head that I have seen him, but he he stopped playing Olympiads in seventy two I believe or seventy four, and I played my first Olympiad in eighty eight. 
So also uh, he stopped playing interzonals uh, long before I started playing. I mean, my first interzonal was 87 and his last one was maybe 17, 79, maybe, I think, Leningrad. So um, and now, you know, um, of course, uh, in my eyes, he had some handicap because when I was seven, no, when I was six, he lost to Fischer 6-0. And uh, a few years after that, a, a book was published, which, okay, it was uh, not a Romanian book. It was signed by Polychroniade, but actually it was uh, all the comments were copied from the Soviet magazines. But anyway, it was in Romania. So, and I, I knew uh, the games uh, of the match. And I had my feelings. Okay, some fascinating chess, but okay, Fischer was a hero. So then I, uh, of course, I saw some uh, games of him and uh, I uh, had this um, general perception about him that he was an original strategist and so on. But um, yeah, somehow I, before writing this book, I, I never get to to come so close to, to him. And I wrote, I wrote it during the pandemics. You know, I was sitting in the garden and I played over, uh, I don't remember how many, nearly 150 games of his on the chessboard. You know, making uh, pen notes and everything, uh, trying to understand everything with my head and so on. I mean, during the pandemics, there was a lo lot of time for everything. Right. But you could not travel. So, and um, of course, then I checked with the computer and I chose only those examples which are uh, not... Um, attackable with with uh, the engines um, and I came to the conclusion that okay um, the reason um, uh, that he never became a world champion was not that he his chess was unsound not because he took um, risks because he had this art of calculated risk uh, but the but he, he was not even in his uh, in his performance, he could play fantastic games, but he could also play some uh, some weaker games. Maybe sometimes trying to play interesting and risky, he he crossed uh, all the lines. I don't know, or maybe his physical shape, his physical energy was not enough to. But okay, for instance, um, when he lost uh, the candidates match against Tal, Tal himself explains how that happened. Tal was leading in the match and actually he was playing well and then his wife uh, had to read his wife Larson's wife was his second there I mm -hmm. mean uh, she was not a strong player but okay she knew some chess uh, and she had to return to Denmark and then Tal eventually won by plus one so actually Tal writes this uh, uh, of course if for a Soviet this would be unthinkable to, to throw away the match for no, I cannot understand him. I can understand him because okay uh, for me such things are are uh, important. So maybe uh, he was a bit too human, let's say no I mean uh, maybe he had this genius, uh, the capacity, the intellect, uh, the culture, um, the desire, but um, maybe his physical energy and focusing were not uh, always the same. It's a pity, but okay, he was still a great player. I mean, okay, he he's the first chess Oscar winner in 67 or 68. Uh, he's the first on the list. 
And actually, after that, with the exception of Korchnoi, uh, they, they are the only actually they are the, the only two players not to ever become world champions who won the Oscar. At least until uh, eighty something when uh, it, when it, it got a break. After that, they started to do it again. But okay, it was this classical chess Oscar. So you know, only Fischer, uh, Karpov, Kasparov, uh, such guys would win uh, the, the Oscar year after year. So um... okay, well, we have a related question, Mihail, from a supporter of the podcast. Uh, Igor Feinstein, who uh, writes in to ask, he said he has Bent Larson's book, Bent Larson's Best Games, Fighting Chess with the Great Dane, which contain 120 of his best games annotated by him. Uh, and he wonders if there's an overlap between your book in terms of the games covered and what your book adds uh, and what level the book is for, which I could help answer. But he says mainly he he wants you to convince him to buy your book, which I, I definitely <laughs> okay. re- recommend it. Uh, well, actually, I, I have... Um... There are several versions of, of his uh, uh, game collections. There is one of them published in '69 and translated to Russian. Uh, and this this had been translated to several other languages. Maybe uh, maybe some of them cover a, a slightly longer period. And then I have a, a book published uh, published in Spain by the editorial uh, Chessy uh, by Alfonso Rom- uh, Romero. Uh, which is a collection of uh, uh, Larson's uh, articles, uh, uh, mostly with his games, but not only, in the times he was living in uh, Gran Canaria. This is actually a quite thick book. So uh, these I used for... Uh, I, I played over all these uh, games, but what I... Um, I cannot say... Probably there are also some uh, some games which are not published in these books. Mm. I, I'm sure. No, I'm sure there are because, uh, at least in the chapter, uh, Bent Larson as a candidate to the world title. Uh, because there, I also show some of his losses. And uh, um, but uh, um, let's say seventy-five percent or more of the games in my book, I cannot say now uh, precisely, are to be found in his books. Uh, but I have planned the book as a manual, and there are. It's, it's not made by ears, but by uh, themes, chess themes. Like um, uh, even this thing, taking risks, is one of the issues. And uh, hypermodern chess and classical chess and tactics. And uh, also in the end game, she was. Uh, so I put them together. And uh, of course, I uh, also correct uh, many uh, many of his analyses. Uh, actually, uh, his analyses were. Uh, uh, reasonably correct, but I also develop them. Sometimes he's optimistic, but uh, in principle, that's already like Karpov. I mean, if he believes in this, uh, you cannot prove to him that uh, his position is not better. And um, yeah, I mean, okay, there's a lot of new material. And I think that if you love Larson, uh, the book can be uh, can be pleasant. Yeah, I agree. I learned a lot. And uh, the book is available on Forward Chess, um, we should say. Uh, And I wanted to ask you, of course, about I was excited to see on the Quality Chess website, they mentioned that Learn from the Legends 2 will be coming out. Uh, So I'd I'd love to hear a bit more about that as well, Mihail. Well, actually, uh, Larson's book 
was meant to be one chapter of Legends 2. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That makes sense. <laughs> but it was it was the pandemics. There was a lot of time, and I I wanted to. I played over all these uh, 150 games or whatever, and uh, then uh, it appeared that I had written something like 200 pages or 180, and that this didn't uh, look like a chapter. And then they told us, okay, just write another, I don't know, 180, uh, a little bit less, and then we make a book out of it. And um, well, um, uh, uh, let me see if I remember all my uh, because these these are also the the legends too. I also wrote during the pandemics. So okay, one of um, my all-time favorites is Lajos Portis. Um, actually, I played with him three games, and uh, you know he he was getting less and less strong because of age, and I was getting stronger and stronger. But if you look at our three games. Uh, game by game, he he won easier. In the last game, uh, uh, he beat me with black in twenty moves or something. So, and the only only real fight was the first game actually. Uh, when I was young, and he was he was actually still um, at least with one foot in the, in the elite. You know, uh, he became a candidate for the seventh or eighth time that year. Um, yeah, okay. of course. Uh, with Portish, it's it's hard to um, to excuse my feelings, but probably it starts with um, the way he was looking. Always elegant, you know. Uh, he had some some class of his own. I mean, you look at his uh, photos when he was um, forty, let's say in the seventies. Uh, uh, you saw some 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 class, you know, um, this kind of classical gentleman and uh, something aristocratic. Um, he had this very low voice. He was a, uh, he's actually a, a bariton, bariton bass uh, opera singer. Yeah? Um, but also something in his style. Actually, after after my three games with him and uh, double checking a bit um, his um, uh, his best games, I understood that. Nobody uh, evaluates him as uh, it should be. Not even Portish himself. Everybody considers him to be a positional player and not such a good tactician. Portish himself, I told him in an interview at his in his apartment in, in Budapest, uh, and he said the same that he was um, he was positional, but unfortunately tactically he was not so good. But of course, nobody can expect. I mean, uh, you know, there is this uh, the Miriapod. If you ask the Miriapod, uh, how does he coordinate his thousand uh, uh, little legs? You could, he would fall at once. He would stumble at once. <laughs> right. No, you do. You just do it. You cannot explain it. Right. And uh, my feeling uh, about Porter is like this. Of course, he has very sound strategic understanding. He's a strategically ambitious player, active. But okay, let's say in a game of chess, uh, the classical view is that okay, uh, you play by intuition most of the moves, but there are two or three critical moments when you have to think. And after that, you play another series of five or ten moves just by okay, you think for a minute and then. Uh, but two or three times you have to have a long thought. And you play against Portish, and he makes a move. And you feel that it's a critical moment, and you think for 20 minutes. 25, okay. 
more than 20, it was not recommendable in uh, the old times, even though they had 20 half hours each for 40 moves and then uh, more. And then you make a move and think, okay, now I will uh, catch up with time because I will play a few quick moves. And then he makes another move, which you didn't expect. And you understand that it's, again, a critical moment. And this sequence can follow for five or six moves. And uh, you are likely to get depressed because you don't get his moves, don't guess his moves. And you spent a lot of time on each of these five critical moves. And you are exhausted, depressed, and in time trouble. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that he had some sort of permanent brain, always uh, calculating. I think I think he was calculating precisely, only that he would not play adventure, adventure chess. So, sometimes he did. Okay, sometimes he did. But uh, he would also be, you know, I, I had this feeling when he beat me in 92 at the uh, Manila Olympiad. I, he chose an opening, okay, of course his repertoire was very wide, but I understood that he chose the most unpleasant opening for me. And uh, uh, there was something on his face when he was making his moves. It was already not that aristocratic uh, uh, gentleman. <laughs> it was just like some guy who said, oh, I'm, 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 I'm cheating with you and you know it and I know it and you'll fall for it. Here's some, you know, like, like Bruce Willis, you, you know, uh, Bruce Willis' uh, ironic smile. Okay, he was not smiling at me, but there was something like this, you know, uh, he says that uh, he, he knows that I don't like and he knows that I know that uh, I got trapped into. Uh, so I, I think he had this move by move and game by game he would try to face you with some unpleasant uh, surprises. And, uh, okay, this was uh, Portage. Then, of course, um, uh, Porugaevsky. Uh, with Porugaevsky, I played only once. Okay, I, <clears throat> I met a draw with Black. Porugaevsky was still rated, I don't know, 26-something. This was 91, probably. So, 26-something meant the top 25. Uh, even though he died a few years later, he was still strong, but okay, somehow I managed to draw with black. I don't have so, such strong uh, 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 impressions from, because okay, uh, we didn't analyze, um, only that my uh, uh, my boss in the team, uh, the, uh, Jean-Paul Touzet, the captain of the manager of our team, he kept asking me, asking me the whole evening, uh, did you really play well, or did he just uh, make a present to you? <laughs> so, I mean, okay, I play the top board. I uh, make a draw with a big guy, and we win that match. Why Why? Why on the earth would, would you ask me this uh, ten times, you know? But still, Porogaevsky's Pulu, Pulu, as the, they called him, uh, Porogaevsky's uh, uh, image was so big in that moment that, of course, uh, he could not believe that uh, Mikhail Marenka <laughs> makes such an easy throw with black against uh, against him, no? But um, Porogaevsky, um, I think he uh, he's the proof that uh, what we call computer chess existed bef long before computers. Not only his opening analysis, analysis but his uh, calculation uh, I mean, 
uh, his strengths and uh, weakness were connected to, related to the same thing. Okay, first of all, his opening analysis lasting for sometimes 30-35 moves were I mean, they 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 stand up to today, wow. and it's logical chess. Uh, some, there is a famous game with tiles, pawn sacrifice in the center, and then uh, bishop takes h7. Everything, uh, uh, some game game against Tora, but okay, there are many. Uh, okay, this this gambit in the queen's Indian, fianchiato queen's Indian, d5, e d5, knight h4, uh, which he started playing against Korchnay, uh in that match. Uh, and uh, he he had this approach in the opening, but also if he got out of the opening some logical initiative or whatever, he would play like a machine, move by move, and uh, uh, he would make practically no mistake. Uh, he would just uh, just heal the opponent. You cannot. Okay, sometimes he would make the second best moves, meaning that uh, it's not the plus six move. But it's the plus three and a half move. But mm-hmm. we know that it doesn't matter uh, in right. practice. Terms. Somewhere around move 35, yes, okay. Uh, why um, did he not reach the same height as Korchnoi? Because uh, uh, if he didn't get this into these scenarios, of course he was a good positional player, should, but maybe he, he lost faith a bit. Maybe, maybe for him, the game of chess was like this, like, a, a bull run, you know, the bull sees red and goes there. <laughs> but if there is no clear red Korchner, of course, he would, he could try here, he could right there, he could uh, set up a trap, he could play psychologically with you. And Korchner always said uh, that, okay, um, uh, everybody can uh, uh, play 20 moves, uh, the strong ones can play 30 moves, I mean, good moves. But only I can play 40, 50, 60, or 70 moves or whatever needed. Uh-huh. For Korchino, it was not important to... I mean, okay, he would look for the right concept. He would be a maximalist uh, in the critical moments. But uh, he would not be depressed if uh, things not did not go his way. He would just uh, keep going. And maybe Borgovsky was a little bit less of a sportsman. Than uh, than Korchina from this, I mean sports, the sportive aspect of chess. Uh, I mean, he was a, an artist, he was a scientist, but maybe a little bit less of a sportsman. Um, then we have uh, Keres, if I'm not wrong. Uh, you, you must understand that I wrote this book uh, some time ago, so I wrote it because of the pandemics and everything. That's a- you know, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, uh, of course, there was a uh, uh, Keres. Well, Keres uh, actually Keres was um, an impressive player. He was also quite um, quite good in his annotations. He was also some. He was some dynamic player. Um, his his pieces would be very uh, very happy to, to to just dance around. Uh, he had also some sound uh, positional base, uh, but um, very dynamic. Of course, he reached uh, higher uh, positions than uh, than Borgaevsky. Uh, I think he managed to maximize his um, his qualities better than than Polo, so he was more of a player. Uh, 
uh, a bit. I mean, okay, they are all players, but you understand what what I say when when. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, and uh, there is uh, his comments are generally uh, not bad. I mean, even uh, from the engine's point of view, okay, they can be improved, but not uh, not that uh, dramatically. Only sometimes. So, um, who else was it? Well, I think we have a, f a flavor for the book. So it's going to be the same format yeah. as uh, Learn from the Legends, which, of course, uh, as the title might suggest, uh, dissects the oh, games of many legends, but sort of looks at a specific angle that someone might not look at on their own. Yes, and, and it's not about end games, as in the Legends one. It's uh, yeah. it's more middle games. And uh, yes, I again, I, I try to extract what is essential from... Uh, uh, every uh, uh, everyone or every player examined there. Uh, that's fantastic. So, I know a lot of people will be looking forward to that. And getting back to Igor's question, who had asked for which level the Bent Larson book is, I would say I would just advise listeners that both books um, are for fairly advanced players, like maybe eighteen hundred plus. But because it's whole games, I do think that even if you're lower rated, you can learn from it. Do you do you write with a specific audience in mind, Mihal? Um, look, uh, when I write a book, uh, okay, uh, even articles, let's say opening with opening articles. Of course, it's uh, it's trickier, no, because uh, uh, you are the thing you are say I saying there. It's never ultimate. Ultimate, yes, it's not never definitive. But uh, let's say a book like uh, Larson, yes. Um, when I write such a book, first of all, I I write it for myself. I want to understand everything what I have, uh, what I'm writing there. And you know, uh, I consider my uh, chess talent, let's say, um, uh, average for a grandmaster. I mean, uh, I uh, I think that I have a talent of work. Okay. I, also has some some native talent, but I think that uh, I tend to understand deep things uh, not so easily. I need to check again and again and again. And I believe that uh, if I explain the things in such a way that I can understand them myself, uh, readers of uh, all levels, of a wide range of levels, have a fair chance to do that too. Because I, I'm never... Um, I'm never short of verbal comments. I'm never uh, how do I say? I mean, I'm I'm talking now here a lot. There is some question, and then I don't uh, remember where I started. So I I try to because for me understanding something it it means explaining to myself a lot of things, and I and I write it, and I think uh, it makes it uh, suitable for for a wide range of levels. Now. I, I have never been a fan of numbers. First of all, you must understand that when I m got my f my first international rating, uh, rating started from two, uh, 2200. So I'm kind of not, you know, not familiarized. I'm, I don't have it in my blood. Right. What it means uh, 1800, you know. But I believe that, um, uh, for instance, there are the tests. Uh, uh, in the end of the book, which uh, uh, I mean, solving quizzes is is useful for for uh, any level. Um, actually, my my editor uh, Jakob Agart once told me. I mean, okay, I hope this doesn't uh, sound unmodest, but it was his words. He said that Mikhail, uh, 
uh, your books are uh, uh, are useful for the uh, lower rated players because uh, you explain everything and also a pl- uh, pleasant read for the grandmasters because of course they would understand many of those things but the fact that you explain them like this it makes the lecture easier for them i mean it's just like uh, uh, i hope this is true okay he said this but uh, from my perspective i you know i'm an exigent reader of what i'm uh, 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 writing so uh, if i agree that i understood that then uh, i repeat i believe that um, uh, it should be understandable and helpful for a wide range of uh, uh, players yeah i i definitely think lots of people can i mean there's just so many beautiful examples and clear explanations so um i i agree but did want to answer uh the listener igor's question um and i did want to ask you me how you also had another book come out this year uh learning chess with Smagin, a quest for beauty but it's hard uh, to find here in the u.s it's hard to find in the it, united states yeah it's hard yeah i believe that uh, okay um you know this project was uh, it was also a pandemic project i think um uh, some uh, some spanish uh, amateur wrote me he wanted to open a publishing ho- uh, house and this was meant to be his first book ah uh, okay a- and he uh, asked me would you like to write a book about uh, vladimir simagin what I heard that, I mean, it was uh, good that he could, <laughs> because I was, you know, like this only honey on yeah, my his face. His face you know, is it, lighting up. Uh, yeah, I explained I explain that um, I had so, something like almost a mystical, um, let's say, okay, maybe mystical is a hard word, but some strong emotional experience. Just by, I saw some of the games and then I uh, read his biography and I compared two pictures of him when, when, when young, when he was quite handsome. And when, you know, he died not so old, I don't remember, uh, around 60 he was, or uh, maybe less, I don't remember. No, le- less, less. He died during a chess tournament. So there was some some tragic in this. I mean, the, the handsome, uh, very, you know, somehow elegant, very classy uh, young uh, man with a brilliant uh, future and uh, everything. And then... Uh, a man who was already uh, aged and who didn't last uh, for too long, and it was the same uh, person. I, I kind of saw myself, you know, from the time when I uh, got an Olympic medal and qualified for interzonal, and all the hopes, and then the limits uh, mm. I I, uh, I reached. You know, I couldn't over overcross. So. And besides that, uh, Simagin's um, games are very interesting. <clears throat> Again, I used um, I used um, a, a book um, published by him in fifty something with his best games uh, with his own comments. Uh, but uh, then I added a, a lot of uh, other games. Because again, it's it's like a manual. It's uh, about several things. Um, uh, it's also about his contribution to the opening, which is uh, it's incredibly rich. I mean, there are mo- many important systems. Uh, he not only the Simagin, uh, the accelerated dragon, as we call it, not only the yeah, Simagin, of course. Um, and um, 
Oh, by the way, you know, uh, they call this uh, system with C4 the Marozzi bind or the Marozzi system. And you know what the funny thing is? It is true that it was played for the first time by Marozzi. But Marozzi was black and huh. he lost with it. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so sometimes uh, history is curious, no? Uh, right. And, uh, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, no, of course, Marozzi was, was a great player, but I mean, um, uh, somehow this was strange that. Uh, uh, yes, and uh, there is some beauty. Uh, again, um, again, uh, uh, Simagin thought of himself that he was a strategist. He started to be, uh, being a tactician when one young, but then he, he very much wanted to say that he was a strategist who would use the tactical, uh, you know, fireworks when everything was prepared for it. And um, actually, this was what he was doing during his games, obstinately. But uh, his strategic understanding was was a bit lower. I mean, he would rarely make tactical mistakes. When he made a combination, very original, very hidden, whatever, even in the end game, it would be most likely correct. But uh, uh, in the strategic, strategic fight, um, you know, he would miss sometimes uh, what would seem like a premature combination. He would not go for a combination because he would not cal calculate it because he would think that that he still has to, uh, let's say, I have my schedule until move 30, I play strategically, then I start uh, com uh, making combinations. It was like like he had this schedule. And <laughs> sometimes, actually, he it was in the logic of the position that if he doesn't do that, he even loses the advantage or, or get, gets the worst of it. So, strategically, his games are less coherent than from tactical point of view. Actually, he had his intention. But, you know, it's also like... Um, you know, uh, uh, Arthur Yusupov once told me that, uh, you know, Steinitz was a much stronger player than Chigorin. But he had such big problems during the matches because he wanted to prove something. <laughs> he wanted to prove that attack, an attack is almost always wrong with poor sacrifices. So he lost many games in the, in the uh, Evans Gambit by trying to prove it wrong. <laughs> and I think that... Um, but okay, at least Steinitz was left to us. Uh, no, he beat Chigorin uh, after all in both matches, and he he's left to us as the guy who who started preaching about strategy. He was not tried in everything he he said, but uh, you know he, he, it made us think that there is such a thing like not only casual combinations, but also some logic, some some di dialectic of of chess, and. Um, uh, Simagen, to, to a certain extent, is uh, is the same. No, he apparently he was rated. I mean, he this uh, posterior rating. I mean, he he was one of the top uh, twenty five players in the world uh, as a strength. But uh, I don't think he ever played uh, abroad because the Soviets had simply too many. The Soviets didn't need to have thirty players playing abroad. There right. is an Olympic team, six yeah. players. Would kill everybody. The others, okay, just play in the Soviet Union. What, what? The rubbles are also good to to earn as a chess player. I mean, you just stay there in reserve. I mean, okay, you are a good training for our top guys uh, who are going to win the Olympiad year after year. So, uh, 
but uh, generally, uh, yes, I think. Uh, what can I say if I compare the book on Larsen and the book of Simagin? Of course, they are completely different players. Uh, and also with different sportive achievements. But I, I cannot say uh, in which book I put more passion. Maybe a bit more in Larson. <laughs> maybe, maybe just a bit, but the initial impulse was stronger in, uh, in Simagin's case. Uh, okay. So, um, and uh, it's uh, also nice that... Um, uh, both books, uh, the cover of bo- both books uh, represent uh, paintings made by my wife Maria, especially for uh, for these. Uh, it's Simagin's sport, Simagin's and Larson's portraits. Yeah, the uh, the article I mentioned in Chess Space uh, by Conrad Shorman showed a couple of your wife's paintings, and they're, they're beautiful. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah, well, she she has. It's also already three or four years that uh, maybe three, yeah three four years. She's only painting uh, chess related uh, paintings, and she has developed um, a style which is something like uh, cubism uh, because she she was a, a classical painter in principle, but then she understood that people like this kind of things. She made an experiment; it was successful, and then uh, she uh, she continued on uh, this uh, trend. And is her work um, is her work available like in prints? I'm just. Do you know if people can purchase her artwork? Uh, well, uh, generally she's um, uh, selling the paintings by direct contact. I mean, okay, we we put them on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we uh, post them. Um, we should also build a site. She had a site at some point, but uh, it doesn't work now. Uh, but in principle, it's by direct contact. Sometimes she has exhibitions during the chess tournaments. So basically, um, if we get uh, an inquiry about a painting, we discuss the price and uh, we uh, ship it. Uh, basically, all over the world. We have shipped okay. to the States, to Australia, mainly in Europe. But um, of course, if it's overseas, it's a bit more expensive, the, the shipment. So... Um, we don't have like an organized system, but I um, have many followers on Facebook. So most of the sometimes, okay, uh, we meet somebody at, at some tournament, and then uh, he orders some uh, portraits. Um, the, she had she made portraits on demand, uh, for instance, and uh, so on. So, but it's more by a direct contact. Okay, and this is uh, WFM Maria Yugina, and I will uh, link to whatever. We can find in the the notes for listeners, um, and also Mihail, on my on my on my own uh, Facebook page, Mikhail Marin, because okay. I, I and my Instagram. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, we we post like this for visibility. Yes, uh, it's um, great. Of course, on my Facebook there are also pictures with uh, all our animals, three dogs and two cats. Okay, glad <laughs> to hear it. Yeah. Um, okay, and we had one more listener question. Uh, Jonathan Slater is a big fan of your English opening series. Um, and was wondering if if you think it will ever be on Chessable or if you would do another English opening series for Chessable potentially. Uh, well, um, uh, actually, I uh, I wrote these three volumes for uh, which is imprinted uh, book. I mean, for quality chess. And then, okay, um, it was a tough uh, task to record two DVDs for Chessbase because. Uh, 
of course, I, I, I would not just choose the same variations and say the same things, even if updated and a bit uh, improved the variations. I would not uh, do that because it's not fair. I mean, uh, right. So I, uh, I had to 75% of the variation of the systems are different. It's not that they are better or worse than what I advocate in, in the books. But the English opening is, for instance, after C4, E5, G3, G6, all these, uh, you know, closed um, system. You can go E4 and Knight E2. You can go Rook B1. You can go Knight F3. You can go E3 and Knight E2. So you cannot say which is best. best. Right. Uh, so for uh, in such cases, I have always chosen a different uh, uh, system in the or on, for the DVDs. But there are there is a 35% of the systems which are the same and uh, there but there I strongly updated and corrected some of um, the inaccuracies in the in the books so now doing it for chessable the third thing of course um, it would be really tough because some some lines you can really not uh, you don't have alternatives if you want there are some systems like for instance against the slav setup the queen's gambit setup there is more or less the same system that uh, is keeping uh, white's chances for initiative alive. So, not so sure. Actually, I had uh, other uh, plans with uh, Chessable. Uh, last year, I I uh, uh, helped Judith. Actually, I was as a co-author to record her uh, three uh, uh, endgame. Uh, uh, I don't know how do you call them DVDs or okay courses. Right. Uh, so I'm practically co-author of her. Uh, yeah. Now I, we had some older uh, planet chessable. I would um, I should con- contact them again. Uh, I was I was uh, yes. Actually, I can tell you what it is about. I came with the idea. Okay, you know, um, what if we take the period between seventy-two, Reykjavik, and eighty-one. In seventy-two, I was seven, and in eighty-one, I was already sixteen. So is my my childhood and big part of the teenage is the chess I have been seeing flowing below my eyes, in front of my eyes, yes? It's the chess that made me a chess player. Mm-hmm. And I want to pick up the very best of uh, those uh, years, no matter of the... Sometimes unknown players played very good games. Unknown, I mean, for, for us today. Uh, and to be uh, like tactics, uh, uh, strategy, and uh, endgame, something like that. But to pick the the very best, of course, everything has to be hundred percent approved by uh, the engines. But to show that, uh, my idea is to show that the mental strength should not be underestimated, because there is this thing what what I said about Polugaevsky. Mm-hmm. Computer chess existed before machine chess existed before the computers. There were people able to create that, to calculate and. Uh... That's fascinating. Yeah, does anyone else come to mind besides Polyevsky that played in that style? Well, uh, we have a, a guy from an older generation. It's Aliyehin. I know that uh, the English. Uh, uh, speaking people frequently call him Alakain, but actually in uh, in English it, it, uh, in in Russian it was Alyehin. There are some people even in Russia who call him Alyehin. The question is how right. do you spell the 
the the e, the e uh, if you if you put two dots on it, then it's Alyosian. If you don't put them, then it's Alyosian. And the problem is that uh, in written uh, Russian, they put the dots when w- w- the case is only in the books for children, <laughs> and otherwise they don't put it. But Alyosian, the the way we we see it spelled now uh, in uh, in chess base, for instance, it's the transcription of his name to French because he became a French. Uh, he defected to France. So this makes me think that still the version Aliechin is more correct than Aliechin. So, okay, now now that it's clear about whom we are talking, yes, Alexander Alexander Aliechin. That's good. But yeah, it's good for me to know as a podcast host. So so thank you. Yes, no, because I, I assume that for from the point of view of... Um, English uh, uh, language, uh, it's a la kind, probably. Probably is the correct way to pronounce it if you see this. Well, we know it's not correct, but people just say it anyway. Okay, okay. So, anyway, uh, there are pieces, of course, at that time, um, there are many things which are imperfect in in, uh, in games, yes, but Alekhin, he, he sometimes had. Um, had some this uh, computer-like uh, precision, and not only precision, but also moves you wouldn't expect. Yeah, and, uh, maybe the most stunning, uh, the most stunning uh, example is um, uh, is a game against Oeve during uh, their first match. Alekhin lost that match, but he started brilliantly. He he had uh, he was leading with six to three after nine games. And uh, he was taking risks in some French with D takes C4. I mean, open center. He played G4, G5 somehow, which is of course a bit exaggerated. But then he got a very interesting position, attacking position. And then um, uh, at a critical moment, Oeve uh, goes for the queen exchange, and he just gets killed in the end game. And Alekhin writes, "Okay, what a pity that Oeve uh, didn't play Queen C2 here." And then he starts analyzing, and it's it's actually it's an incredible. It's one of the best piece of analysis ever, uh, ever done. I mean, if we exclude the computers, mm-hmm. and uh, there are three in all these lines, which are not so easy to evaluate and calculate. There are three clear computer moves. I mean, moves which you if you see them today, you say, oh, of course, but with computers. Uh, no, but he didn't have a computer, unless he was not a not a refugee from Russia, from Soviet Union, but a spy, and uh, unless they gave him a computer to spy over the West, and he used the computer for chess analyzing. Of course, this is a joke, but uh, uh, of course, in twenty something and thirty, in the twenties and thirties, there was nothing similar to the computer to to uh, and. Uh, Yes, uh, yet there are these... Uh, of course, not all of his comments are uh, 100% accurate, but uh, he had something like uh, machine um, uh, machine thinking. Well, then, if we think of... Um, well, of course, Fisher was very precise, actually. When he got... Um, when he got this uh, kind of uh, position, he would master, I mean, with... With a light, slight advantage, but when when he knew what he had to do, 
he he was to play very very accurate chess, both positional and uh, concrete uh, concrete chess. Uh, that was, uh, but let's say Fisher is not the first example I would I would give because okay, whatever Fisher did was so clear that even the opponents enjoyed. Uh, I mean, they knew how the game would end, but they could not change the course. Somehow it was mm. so uh, like a baby smile, no? As Fisher used to say. But uh, with kind of yeah, and Fisher, uh, yeah, you know, Fisher. Um, how did he beat Spassky? Actually, he, Fisher was analyzing a lot, and somebody Swetin said, uh, Swetin wrote that Fisher is reading the Soviet li- literature, chess literature, dedicated more time to read it than the whole Soviet Olympic team together. <laughs> so he he knew everything what was written by the Soviets, and he would analyze it and uh, correct uh, things. And uh, but uh, in the opening, he did not have such a deep understanding as Geller. Geller really could come with the truth, you know that that thing which is really the truth. Uh, if he tried to do that over the board, it was uh, you know like uh, don't this don't try this at home. Uh, he would finally manage to do it. But it would cost him one hour on one and a half hour on the clock, and uh, many times he would not have the time and energy to to win the game as deserved as it deserved. And okay, Geller was uh, Spassky's second in uh, 1972, and Fisher got caught twice, only twice in the opening. But actually, after game four, he understood that he should not play with Geller; he should play with Spassky. And he started to just dance uh, through Spassky's uh, opening repertoire. And they would, Fisher, who was known to play the same openings of all his life, he started playing uh, new openings. Okay, the, the Alekhian defense, he had been playing a few times, but nobody would have thought seriously that he would play during the World Championship match. And he played it twice and scored one and a half points out of two. So, um, uh, I don't know how we came. To, yeah, okay, okay. It's, it was about uh, correctness and the machine, and uh, uh, I think that Keller was uh, in the opening. Keller was uh, better than the machine, uh, better than most of the most. Wow, of the that's amazing, guys. Uh, of course, mach- the machines uh, would confirm nowadays. His, uh, you know, there is this strange um, thing. Timan wrote the, wrote a book on on the match. Uh, in '73, I believe <clears throat> it was published only in Dutch, and then uh, I don't know how many decades later, he republished it in uh, English, and he added some uh, some things. Um, sometimes, some of his games with Geller on the variations played in the match, even if uh, they were game he lost, Timan lost. There is one exception where he doesn't add anything. It's the first game where Fischer played C4, C4. It was a Queen's Gambit that attacked over Spassky's uh, trusted weapon. And then uh, Fischer plays against plays against Spassky himself. He plays this bishop b5, which was used by Furman to defeat uh, Bondarevsky, who was the former second of Spassky. And the game was uh, one or two years old. And Spassky... Uh, Reacted in the same way as Bondarevsky, the first move or maybe two, and got into a worse position, and then Fischer just killed him brilliantly. 
The fact is that um, apparently Geller knew uh, how to react against Bishop B5, uh, and some some people wrote about that that Queen B7 was the it was a pawn sacrifice. Apparently, he had told to Spassky that this is the move. It's not clear whether Spassky didn't trust him or didn't remember it during the game. But the fact is that Timan uh, said that, uh, but okay, what is uh, this queen b7? And he analyzes it uh, for quite a while and he concludes that white is clearly better. And his variations are correct, only that he, after taking, after white takes the pawn, he doesn't analyze the main candidate, which is knight a6, a developing move, inviting to a game with a position where apparently white has a good knight against a bad bishop and an extra pawn. But actually, white is close to trouble there. Uh, hmm. And uh, Geller won against Tima. Uh, they, they, they met, yes, over the board, and Geller beat Timan in a brilliant game. And Timan doesn't say anything about this in, in the older edition because it was probably too painful for him to, to think of that. Okay, the right. fact is that the fact that he lost uh, one Alekhin game against Geller in the same variation as played in the game, as, as in the match, was not so painful for him because okay it was just a game but here he had analyzed the position and he had not thought of this knight a6 that's uh, that's the point uh, he doesn't say anything uh, he keeps the, the old analysis showing that queen b7 is no good <laughs> so uh, it must might have been some lapsus you know mental uh, lapsus uh, i don't know how the, the latins would call it not lapsus manus but lapsus uh, intellectualis yes uh, but it was clear that he wanted to block that thing. He, he wanted to, to get rid of it. To... And I can understand it. Geller was uh, very deep in, uh, in opening and, okay, over the board too, but um, he was like slow, like myself. I mean, until he understood the truth, uh, he would spend one or one and a half hours. Uh, so even some games he lost could be uh, instructive from the point of view of the critical moment when he finds the truth and he goes that way. Um, but uh, then I said that, okay, um, maybe Korchile was not on a lower uh, level than uh, than him, but he, were mo he was more, more of a player, nevertheless, Korchile. The fighting spirit, um, I don't know, um, because Keller, of course, he was quite high in the hierarchy uh, and he has many masterpieces, but still Korchile is uh, something you cannot see uh, each century. If you see such a guy uh, once in a century, then you are uh, happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the depth of his thoughts and uh, the vari variety of his style. He could play any opening with any color, uh, any kind of position, attack, defense, uh, play end game tactics, attacks, um, strategy, and his persistence to play chess uh, over the age of 80. Always dangerous for anybody. Yeah. For anybody. I mean, you understand? Stressful, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Well, Mihail, this has been fantastic. So so much fun just to, to hear you talk about all of uh, learning about all the legends from you. So I, I greatly appreciate it. I, I'm sure there's even more to learn from you. So maybe we can uh, do this again sometime in the future. Well, uh, thank you very much for the invitation and for your kind words. Uh, for me, you know, I mean, I love chess. <laughs> I mean, I'm not Korchinoi, but I, I love chess. And uh, 
I am blessed now uh, with my wife Maria, who who believes in. Okay, she's a painter, but she's also a feeder master, and she also like uh, loves chess. And she helps me sometimes. Even I, I show her uh, a game. I said, okay, do you think this game would fit into the article, or maybe we should take this one, because I'm uh, sometimes I'm subjective. So, so so my wife Maria helps me keeping my you know my wife my my life tracked on on, on chess mm-hmm. and uh, of course talking about chess is always um, inspiring some sometimes when i'm talking i i learn something from myself right i mean things i just talk about and then said ah maybe it's because of this and uh, something i never thought be, uh, before so uh, i hope only it, it wasn't too boring because <laughs> i know i no definitely I, not. I tend to talk a lot no, it's fascinating, and uh, yeah. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll be sure to link to your books. And you mentioned you have a Facebook page, and I know you're on Twitter a little bit. What is uh, the best way for listeners to to keep up with your work, Michal? Um, actually, I think that uh, it's uh, best on Facebook. Actually, okay. I have uh, neglected posting my last uh, my latest books. I think the Lar- I didn't post uh, Larson, or maybe I did. Also, I, I should make an update to the DVDs and the uh, books. Um, I mean, on my page, okay, you can see my uh, our uh, traveling around by car uh, in Europe, for thousands and thousands of kilometers, our animals, but also Maria's paintings uh, and some of my books. But uh, okay, I should I should make an update on that on the books. Uh, good that you uh, talked about it. Yes, well, it was uh, my pleasure. They're fantastic books, and uh, I look forward to more. I know you you stay busy, so I'm sure there's uh, more (laughs) to look forward to. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you a lot. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on Podcast Network. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. 
Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.